When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Greymalk and Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to nerd out over old X-Men books together. Now, in our last episode, we put Namor on trial. Uh, we had an absolute blast. It was a ton of fun. And right after that, the Wakanda Forever trailer dropped and Namor was in it. So that was crazy timing. But uh, I'm really excited to be a Namor fan right now. Uh, this week, we're taking a step away from the X-Men, where we've been reviewing the Polaris Mesmero story for the last couple of episodes with uh, Dan Jurgen, Steve Rude, and others. Uh, and we're going to step into the Avengers world for a minute uh, for the wedding of Janet Van Dyne and Henry Pym. Or is it? We'll get to that <laughs> in today's episode. Uh, this features my favorite team of villains from the 60s ever. Uh, it's the Circus of Crime. We'll talk about them a lot today, too. Uh, and we get a one-page appearance from the X-Men, which was the tie-in for me. It was enough to include maybe my favorite old Golden Age or Silver Age uh, issue, which is wonderful. So this book is from January 1969. It's written by Roy Thomas who of course we know on this podcast well. Uh, art by John Buscema with inks by Mike Esposito, letters by Sam Rosen and Herb Cooper, and edits by Stan Lee. I am thrilled to uh, invite back to uh, returning guests, my good friend, Sarah Century. Hi, Sarah. Hello, good to be back. As well as Bar Fox. Hi, Bar. What's going on? How are you? So good. And I'm thrilled to be uh, welcoming to the podcast the wonderful colorist, uh, Tree Farrell. How are you, Tree? Hi, hi. nice to meet you. I've, uh, I've had to stop myself from saying Tree's first name, which is spelled with an I, <laughs> an I and an O, but it's pronounced Trina and not Triana. So I'm just going to say Tree so I don't mispronounce it. <laughs> yeah, it has a what's called a fudder on the I, which is like an, it's an Irish name thing. It's uh, don't know where even Irish people get it wrong. So. <laughs> uh, and this is a truly an international podcast today. Tree is in Ireland. We've had a We've had guests from South Africa and Russia and a few other places, uh, Venezuela. Right. Yeah, it's it's great to have you here, Tree. Uh, so I'm going to let each of you introduce yourselves. As you do so, let us know uh, your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you best from. And then our prompt question today, you can answer either or both of these questions. Uh, do you have a crazy snake story or what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen pop out of a cake? Uh, so let's go in the order of Tree, Bar, and then Sarah. Okay, so hi, my name is Trina Farrell, or Tree if it's easier. Um, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm based in Dublin, Ireland, and I'm a colorist. And you might know me best from many Marvel issues. I do work for Vault, Image, DC, things like that. Um, I guess uh, West, I did the, I was on West Coast Adventures with Kelly Thompson, 
um, that had numerous different artists. And I was on for the, the, the 10 issue run of that, which is prob- probably one of my more popular things. Um, the And what an unusual, I've never had anything pop out of a cake at me. <laughs> I think it, it, we actually own a snake. We own like a little corn snake. And we panicked when we first brought him. He was a little wee tiny thing. And we, we knew that corn snakes could get out very easily. And we realized in the first day that we couldn't find him. And so we actually nearly tore apart his little cage thing going like, where the fuck is he? <laughs> he thought he had like crawled. He's somehow gotten himself out. And then we were aware because we have cats in the house. So obviously it would have been like a bit of a, a massacre if it happened. But anyway, he was fine. He burrowed himself underneath the thing. That's my, my crazy snake story. I don't have anything particularly crazy. Like I haven't encountered anaconda or something like that. <laughs> are they called, are they called corn snakes because they eat corn? They're just, no, I think it's because of the, their pattern is why they're called corn snakes. Oh, they're like okay. the really, really common pets. They're like, they're very cute. Um, he's terrified of us, but he's, he's, he started like this small and now he's getting to like this big. So oh, cute. cute. <laughs> I, I don't love snakes, but that sounds That's cute. <laughs> uh, Bar, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. I am Bar Fox. Two R's, two X's. You might know me from Cosplay Your Way. If you don't, check us out. My pronouns are he and him. And I do have a snake story. And it was really funny. Um, I have a roommate, or I had a roommate. And I was walking down the steps one day with the lights out. And I thought I stepped on a belt. And I was kicking down the steps because the roommate was on the lower level. And I was yelling, like, pick your belt up off the steps. That's stupid. Why would you leave a belt on the steps? Any of us could fall down. And then when we turned the light on to see the belt, it was a snake that was moving back towards us. (laughs) So I was like, wow. And I was barefoot and I stepped on it and kicked it. It was just really a thing. Because after that, we went into this whole panic mode because I had never confronted a snake before. So confronting that snake after I had stepped on it just just sent me through all kind of changes and ew, and what's going on? So luckily we were able to get it in a trash can, scoop it up and let it go outside. But um, yeah, <laughs> that I uh, I bet you have an impressive scream, and I bet everyone heard it that day. <laughs> they did, they did. <laughs> and uh, then let's go over to Sarah. Sarah, thanks for coming back so soon. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I was here only yesterday, and I'm sure that viewers feel very or listeners feel very much the same. Um, uh, you're delightful, I, which is why I keep asking you back. <laughs> yes, I love to be back. I and yeah, same when you talk about this being one of your favorite issues of the era. I am, as stated, a huge Janet Van Dyne fan, so I'm excited to get into it. But I am Sarah Century. You can find me on the podcast Bitches on Comics. And I often put together a speculative fiction anthology that is queer based, uh, queer creators. 30 queer stories a month, like a year. We do like this big PDF anthology. It's called Decoded Pride, which you can check out at decodedpride.com. The PDF is about to be collected. Usually we do it story a day during June. Uh, But yeah, the PDF is coming out really soon. We're always really tired by the end of June. So it takes us a few weeks, sometimes months to get the PDF together, but it'll be coming out real soon. And um, as far as uh, my pronouns are she, her, if I forgot to say that. And um, as far as wild snake stories, I am (laughs) the owner of a rabbit. So um, actually several rabbits. So I have to say that I'm slightly 
you know, not totally compatible with snakes. Um, <laughs> if a snake was in this house, I would have to politely ask it to leave. But I lived in um, rural Missouri growing up, and most of my animal stories are, as a result, mostly horrific. But I did save a snake once. And so I hope that me and the snakes are copacetic, right? <laughs> That's my hope. Because there was my boy cousins were like all kind of uh, rough and tumble. Let's just call them hillbillies, honestly. But they were all a bunch of hillbillies. And so, you know, they were like chasing down a snake once. And it was like a very I'm Spider-Man. And they're like the villain moment where I was just like, you will not hurt that snake. Absolutely not. Because, yeah, they they were terrible people, but, and I believe that they remain so to this day, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I saved a snake's life. It was a garden garden snake. Those like little ones that don't have any teeth, which is even sadder because it's like, Oh, it's just trying to live. It's just like a little cutie. So I really enjoy snakes, not, not in my house right now, <laughs> but I do enjoy them. I, and lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use him pronouns. My day job is as a therapist. I got a couple of kids, so I'm busy, but I'm always writing or working on something on the side. So I'm a, I'm a handbook writer. I'm a published author, a graphic novelist, and a filmmaker. Uh, I use he, him. Did I ever say that? Uh, I have encountered snakes in the wild a number of times. Weirdly, I'm also from rural Missouri, and I feel like there were always snakes, turtles, and or salamanders in our yard. Uh, but my mom's parents grew up or, or owned a potato farm in Idaho and we'd always visit. And I remember my grandpa going out with a shovel to like kill as many snakes as he could. And I was always horrified. Like I needed to leave the house because I, I don't like snakes per se, but also I would never harm anything ever. Uh, but I had some friends or, or friends of friends. These are people that I know. And I have heard this story live who after moving into a house had a nest of snakes that like hatched. And so like snakes were crawling through their house. Uh, mm -mm, no, <laughs> no. Up, it, their, their story has ended up being featured on a couple like, can you believe this happened type like reality shows. Uh, <laughs> and one of my friends from high school had to act as like the guy who bought the house in one of these shows. So we were like, <laughs> I'm like, I knew the people this happened to. And now I know the guy acted in the movie. Uh, uh, I don't have any popping out of a cake stories either. Uh, um. Bar, you've never popped out of a cake? I have never popped out of a cake. I have been to a party where someone did pop out of a cake. Okay. Um, okay. I think I think we were on um one of the the uh, Atlanta Housewives show, and we were at a oh. party, and so they brought in a big cake because they did it really big, and then we had a dancer pop out of the cake to perform for everyone. So that was like maybe season one or two. <laughs> I feel like someone popping out of a cake is much more sexy in theory than in reality. Tree, have you ever popped out of a cake? Uh, no. God, getting the frosting off you. <laughs> but there isn't enough soap in the world. I've never seen anything pop out of a cake. I don't know, but maybe it's more of a common American thing. But like, I've just, I've seen cakes, you know, obviously. But like, nothing ever popped out of them. Um, you can combine the stories here and just have like snakes popping out, you know, like those well, snake and a can things. <laughs> that's what we're gonna. That's what we're gonna get in today's issue. We have a python and a cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, when they do it, it's no icing. I mean, it's like a nice cake. It looks like icing until somebody pops out of it. It's just. I assume it's, it's a, like cardboard you know, or something. Yeah, it's um, a cardboard, yeah, yeah. and they decorated a little on top of the cardboard. But other than that, nah. 
I feel like yeah. it's a, I feel like it's a trope that I've seen in a bunch of TV shows. There's like a stripper in a cake that pops out and dances, and you're like, eh, okay, <laughs> surprise! It's a giant human-sized cake. Oh, there's a human in it. Crazy. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to spend the first part of our podcast today just talking to uh, Tree. Uh, I've got some questions prepared. Uh, Sarah and Barr, feel free to jump in anytime with anything you want to share. This is just kind of conversation style. Uh, Tree, I'd love to start off, and I just have to acknowledge, which is for me, the elephant in the room. Uh, I adore your accent so very much. <laughs> I, uh, I once interviewed Rihanna Pratchett on the on the podcast, and I told her the same. She's from uh, from England. And, and, and I said, I don't think anyone has ever said, oh, your American accent is so amazing. And she's like, well, we grew up listening to American TV. It's not exotic for us. Uh, do you get told you have an accent often when doing uh, podcasts and or interviews? Um, actually not often because I get I get told by Irish people often probably because I talk in American so much that I have like an American twang um, <laughs> that the so like it's it's clear obviously when you guys are talking to me that I I, I have like a kind of a I want to say like a like an upper class Dublin accent is probably what you class it as you know as I say like a lot but um yeah it you know people kind of mention it it kind of depends on um I think uh Americans have like a fascination with the Irish so you 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 go like oh you British and their faces fall and you go like it's you know I'm actually Irish and their faces light up because <laughs> uh, it's like it's like being better British basically <laughs> there's there's just something there's just something so musical about an Irish accent that makes me smile every time uh but uh I'm just getting to know you of course but I I'm just going to be smiling at your accent the whole time little hearts in my eyes I'm like oh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Tree, let's begin. Uh, let, let's hear just a little bit about your career path. Uh, a lot of people will choose to be artists. I think it's more rare for people to choose the paths of, of coloring. Uh, tell me a little bit about your journey into professional coloring. Um, it's a bit of a weird one. So I actually didn't do any kind of art in school. I drew I drew a lot and I did like a lot of art kind of as a hobby. I actually um, I went into college and I did history and classics. And I came out with a master's in um, critical art theory. So that's, uh, you know, but it was all based on like um, pro Irish propaganda, very far removed. And um, I, I like, so in Ireland, um, everything is very tiny. So there's about, I'd say a pool of about like uh, 20 professional artists. Um, I think I'm one of about I want to say five colors, six. If you're, if anyone's listening, I'm sorry, <laughs> but like the um, it's just a tiny pool. So I was actually um, uh, back in, I, I want to say, I'm trying to remember the dates now. I want to say like 2016, maybe 2015. Um, I was walking uh, near my local shopping center, um, my mall, and um, they, the, my local comic book shop called The Big Bang. It's a very, very famous um, comic book shop uh, in Ireland. It's like one um, multiple awards they'd set up this small convention called dice and they'd actually brought over like a whole bunch of really famous artists over and marvel editors so they had cb sabolsky over there they had becky clunan they had matt wilson kind of really famous people like that and that's really kind of my first introduction was at that point i didn't think i could have art as a career it was kind of trying to build a career in ireland and art is way <laughs> but um I kind of started doing comics, sort of kind of web comics, kind of minor things. I really got like a feel for it. And someone pointed out that kind of like, hey, your coloring is really good. You should try and like, you know, maybe set up a couple of portfolios. And like anything, you know, you get one job and then it begins to snowball over time and you get better, obviously. And, you know, you get better contacts and et cetera, et cetera. So it's just kind of, you know, 
you kind of wake up four years later and go, oh, Christ, <laughs> I have a career, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, like, that's, that's really, like, uh, how it happened in the end. And um, there's a lot of kind of... Um, kind of going to America and kind of look, getting people to look at my portfolios and things like that. Because like I, I, I have, we have a one convention, like one professional convo convention in this country per year. It has like 17,000 people and that's it. <laughs> so like your, your, your options are you have to go to the States and you have to like introduce yourself to people and things like that. But like, um, yeah, so that's, that's my career trajectory. It's just, it's just, you know, you get one job and if you do well, you get the other jobs, you know, you get a, start to build them in a name for yourself. That's really how it worked for me. What were some of your earliest works, uh, published works? Um, I did like a lot of work for Boom back in the days. So that would have been like, I did like a lot of Power Rangers stuff. I did like a Terminator book with Dark Horse ages and ages ago. Um, my first Marvel work was, a <coughs> I filled in for Matt Wilson on a Runaways issue. Um, the... God, I can't even remember. It was, I, I think I counted up, but I think it been like 300 or 400 issues at this point. Um, so I, I did some early image stuff like Rose with Meredith Finch, who was um, David Finch's wife. And um, I did stuff with um, like IDW. So that would have been like a lot of uh, kind of IP work. Um, what you kind of did, like Nancy Drew with uh, Dynamite, like th- things like that, you know. Um, it's kind of hard looking back now when I see like an issue and I'm like, oh yeah, I worked in that. <laughs> and the files are probably in somewhere in my computer, who not even knows, but like the, um, uh, it's kind of like after it all begins to blend together after like five or six years. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you, uh, you've done a lot of prominent work with a number of uh, really incredible creators, uh, Rainbow Rowell and, and Kurt Busiek and uh, all kinds of people, but it seems like you've worked with Kelly Thompson the most, at least on your Marvel side. When I look over yeah. your, your resume, tell me about your working relationship with Kelly. And um, we get on very well. It's uh, Kelly is a, a really, really fantastic writer um, she really knows what she wants, which is great, you know, um, she's very clear about what she wants. Uh, generally now, um, the thing is with being a colorist, it's like it's a, your, your um, relationship with kind of like your creators really, really depends on the creator and also the editor. So there's like literally books I've worked on in DC and Marvel and in other companies as well, where like literally I will never talk to the artist. <laughs> just whatever way they they work out things in in that regard where like um what do they feel that kind of like it's just easier to have notes be filtered through an editor or um just whatever way the editors set things up you know and like generally I will do my best to kind of have a working relationship because it is much easier to have a working relationship um with artists you know because it's uh artists and writers because you can get a feel for like what they want and different companies will do different things so there will certain like um vault for example tend to very close working relationships with their artists and writers while other companies will be like a bit of a hands-off approach you know and there'll be people that I will work with and I know them very well and like I work with uh, Stephen Mooney a lot he's a guy he, he does work for DC and Marvel he's also an Irish artist and I know him very very well um I last got really, really drunk with him uh, a month or two ago, three months ago. <laughs> um, so, but like, yeah, I, I know him very well. I have known him for like five or six years. So like the, um, uh, the to answer your, your question, like Kylie, Kylie Thomas though. Yeah, no, like uh, I, uh, I really enjoy working with her. She's a really, really fantastic writer. And like, she really knows what she's doing when it comes to kind of the um, kind of implementing the creative side of things. 
Awesome. I have a question for you. Um, I noticed earlier or earlier you stated that there are not that many people in your profession in Ireland, but you are a female as a colorist. Is that common or are you one of the few females that do this? And then in a place where you live, like Ireland, at this, you said about six professionals. Are you the only female in that in that six or is it more females that do it? So there's, um, so I'm just counting them up. So there's, including me, there's four female colorists and then there's yeah. two um, male colorists. Um, generally, um, now, take this with a pinch of salt. Um, obviously, the comic industry tends to lean more male <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when it comes it to artists. That I, and I think it has, it's not really, I think, super intentional. It comes down to more, um, like it probably is intentional in some cases, but I, I do feel sometimes it comes down to like <laughs> style that like women tend to have like um, kind of maybe not like the, tra the traditional DC Marvel look, you know? So like you tend to kind of, and I, I, I do feel that kind of, it's probably easier for women to get in as coloring, you know, because if like I do draw myself, but I can't see Marvel or DC ever picking up that kind of work because that's not really what I do. I don't do superhero drawing you know because that's just not my area of expertise i'd rather do other stuff um but yeah like i do i don't know is the thing that kind of like i want to say that when it comes to coloring um it's probably more of a 50 50 split for male female and then for um for artists i say it's probably leans more heavily male especially for dc and marvel stuff like when you get when you kind of go beyond the Marvel and DC stuff, it tends to become a lot, um, uh, what you got, more diverse. Um, and definitely within DC and Marvel, I know there's a lot of editors who really, really push for this, for like more diversity. Like there's some fantastic editors within those companies, but obviously like there's still that old, um, still that old thinking, I guess, from ages back. <laughs> who, are, who are some of your favorite editors? Um, so I'm going to name off a few here. So I, I love Heather Antos, first off. I've worked with Heather on multiple things. She used to work for Marvel, which she's um, with IDW now, but I've also worked with her um, on her more freelance stuff. Um, she's really, really, uh, she's such a fantastic editor. Like she's, um, you get, you sometimes will get editors and they're not quite sure what my job is. So they'll, they'll ask for something like, hey, can you do a hundred pages in a week? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I can, but you know, I will, I will curse you till the end, my end of days, because it's a terrible thing to ask. Um, but she, no, Heather's very aware of like what my job is, how much time I need. And she's also very good at kind of like, she understands the narrative process, how things kind of work from panel to panel. And she'll, she'll, there's, it, you always know it's a good sign of a good editor when they point out something and you go like, actually, yeah, that would look way better as yellow or something like that, you know? So, um, Heather's really fantastic. Um, I'm thinking in Marvel, kind of like, uh, Alana Smith, I absolutely love, um, the uh, I have to give special note to Andrea Shea in DC as well. Really, really fantastic editor knows exactly what she's doing. Um, and I'm trying. There's so many I've worked with. <laughs> I'm the, the kind of anyone who's really working in vault. I find really quite fantastic. Like they're um, they're they're very they're very good editors. Are on point and they've always been very kind to me. Like really, what I look for in editor is kind of like that you respect my time, you respect my work. And kind of like you 
uh, you can't let me go a little bit hands off, <laughs> you know, uh, not micromanaging me. I don't mind if there's like notes or whatever, it's fine, but micromanaging is this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we all hate micromanaging. I think you yeah. can agree to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a universal human thing, <laughs> definitely. Can't stand. I have another question. So um, since you've started to now, has there been a major change in the coloring process or major change in how you approach your, your, your job or your career or anything that just really pivoted and helped you either level up or just change the whole way you do it? I think it's been more of a gradual process. Um, like technology has really kind of stayed the same. Um, you know, Adobe Photoshop, uh, the, the company Adobe might disagree with me on that, but like really it's kind of, it's functioning the same for what it was about five, five or six years ago is when I started. Um, I think I've gradually just gotten better and better and better just by noticing problems or editors pointing out mistakes or, you know, um, getting feedback from other colorists or seeing what other colorists are doing and things like that. So, um, I, I do remember when I, I did my first issue and I worked on something called, um, Weavers, which was at Boom, and this was a, a book by Cy Spurrier, and it had uh, the artist Dylan Burnett. And um, there's a process in Photoshop you can use where you can basically uh, get the get Photoshop to like automate all the files out and save them as flattened files. Um, and uh, so when you have like 20 pages open, instead of saving them one by one as like a JPEG, um, you could do it all automatically, but I did for five issues. <laughs> I would save it one by one, and I'd be there like just, just a god, god why? And then <laughs> until someone like pointed out that kind of like, hey, you can actually do this because I, I definitely hit the ground running. I didn't really have much knowledge of Photoshop or printing or anything like that. I like I'm very much a person who like colors on instinct, just kind of go, 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 yellow, red, blue, you know, like wherever it kind of goes. And I know some colors will probably kind of hate me for that, but kind of it's the way I'm comfortable working but um it's been a gradual process but you know you always kind of just when someone points out something that kind of like hey you do realize you're doing you could do this way easier if you did this and you're like ah okay <laughs> perfect uh so two-part question from me here uh well actually three parts if you'll take three at the same time are you strictly digital uh number one Number two, if you could think of uh, a single page that you are really proud of that represents your coloring well, the type of thing you'd show people, what is that? And number three, what is something that you just fucking hated coloring? <laughs> it was just a chore and was awful. Um, so sorry, just repeat the first question there for yeah, me. So uh, are you strictly digital? Uh, something you're proud oh. of and then something you hated? Yeah, so... Um... It, really with coloring you have to be strictly digital if you are doing traditional with uh coloring comics like you are really just making ms for yourself they they now they will sometimes do traditional coloring um at the companies but this is in very very specific circumstances and usually for like covers and things like that in terms of like i like I, I I know how to paint and things, you know, but that would be more for my own kind of personal illustration. But um, no, I've never actually uh, attempted to kind of color a comic. I used to work in coloring pencils way back in the day, actually, and I, I once attempted to kind of color um, a Wonder Woman cover in coloring pencils, but it was just such a laborious kind of thing. As like, oh god, I could I could do this in three seconds, and I'm taking like three hours to do it, you know? Like I <laughs> I get I get distracted very easily. As for something I loved, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, uh, but it was a, of the the one of the Hulkling books, um, 
and it oh, was, it a was, very, a, very... It was uh, Lords of Empire, Emperor. Hulk. That's the one. Yeah. And uh, I absolutely written, love written by our good friend, Anthony Oliveira, who we love. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, no, he's fantastic. But I, we did, um, I think it was either third. It was a spread page anyway, early on in the book. And it was of this, of this gay club. And I decided like this, um, that the way that I would, I would have it like flashing colors, but the, the, I would have it to flashing to the colors of the pride flag. <laughs> so like one panel is like, it starts with like, um, uh, I'm trying to look at the, the, what you call it. It starts with like the, the red, and then it goes on to like the orange and it goes yellow and then green and then purple and you know, <laughs> like that. And I, I absolutely loved coloring that and Marvel absolutely loved it as well. So that's probably my, my favorite work. There's other stuff that kind of like I've, I've colored and I've, I, some, sometimes I feel like my job is just a bunch of happy accidents. That's it. <laughs> um, where like I, you know, you, I accidentally put yellow down somewhere and I'm like, oh, that really, really works. I really liked how, um, which got uh, one of the Hit Girl books, Hit Girl India, with them um, Alison Sampson um, and Mark Miller. Um, I just they just told me to kind of do whatever I wanted, so I just didn't color inside the lines in that book. <laughs> I loved doing that; it was great. Um, as for something I hated, um, I don't know. I don't. I don't really want to get into like two. There's like there's like situations. Um, I'm very much a kind of a, a salt the earth kind of person when it comes to my career in that, like, if I really, really just like working on something, I'll be like, just put my hands up in the air and go like, you know what? I'm not the colorist for this. I'm going to go because I think that the emotional labor and the amount of time you spend like emailing back and forth with like arguments, is just not worth my time, you know? So like, um, the, uh, there's nothing I particularly have like absolutely loathed. There's definitely been moments where like um, I've been asked for like very ridiculous deadlines because someone up the way screwed up. Like um, I can I can forgive <laughs> artists. I can forgive artists being late. I cannot forgive writers being late. So like just I'll write the damn thing for you. Because I'm the last person <laughs> in I'm the last person in the pipeline. So if someone else screws up further down the line, I'm the one who has to fix it. So you do, end up in, uh, do even the letters get added before the color? They um now the letters will be fair, and I, I do agree with this. <coughs> letters will be fair to work in colors because it's obviously easier when they're to match like um the sound effects and whatever they're they're doing artistically. Um, but that's really not the situation generally. Uh like letters will be added uh in once the art comes in, like the, the black and white art. So like I'm often like literally. God, I remember there was one book, and I don't, I don't know which Marvel book this was. This was years and years ago, and Marvel have, for me, anyway, definitely improved. But I remember it was, um, uh, I had to get the book in for 11 p.m. my time because the offices close and Marvel they won't work on the weekends, so they, they, the book was literally going to print at 5:30, and I was getting the art in on that day, and I managed to get all of the art in at five o'clock. <laughs> And then they had to like rapidly stitch it together <laughs> and then send it off to the, so when people go like, oh, this is a well-oiled machine, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> um, <laughs> a well-oiled well machine that sometimes doesn't work very well. Yeah. When, the, uh, when the pandemic first started, I, I have two children that started being homeschooled and we couldn't spend, sorry about the ring there. Uh, we couldn't spend all of our time doing electronics or, or, you know, things that to keep them entertained. So I had to adopt a whole bunch of things like taking lots of walks and doing crafts. And I remember buying this big stack of coloring books. And uh, we got it like colored pencils and markers. I am not someone who normally colors, but we would spend hours and hours as a family working on one single page. 
And I remember reading comics right after I started doing that and thinking, holy shit, I have never thought how fucking long this takes. I picture those images like uh, it, it's circulating online a lot, like uh, that image that's drawn of like a hundred different mutants at the Green Lagoon and how every costume is different and they're all little teeny figures. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. <laughs> so I, yeah. I really respect the work that goes in. Um, um saying that that there's um part of the process with me is i actually have assistance behind me because you, you need to have assistance i have something what what they call a flasher and the flasher is basically someone who separates out all the colors on the page and so generally behind the scenes i will have like three or four flashers working to get pages to me and pretty much every colorist uh has this some of them you like if you if you kind of flash it and separate all the colors of your own pages, you'd be there forever. I did that for my first book and I just gave up. And I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna hand it to someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, so it's not that impressive, but yeah, I have handled kind of crowd scenes before, and you're there and you're like, you like there's shortcuts you can take to crowd scenes because like I'm not gonna sit there and color each person's visually, you know, like a hundred people on the page. Um I worked on a crowded. Um, from Chris Sabella at uh, Ted and Row. Um, this is a, an image book. It's really, really fantastic, but like God, it really lived up to its name because there were so many like scenes are so crowded <laughs> in that book. And so you go from like giving like just crowd scene one panel, crowd scene the next panel, crowd scene the next panel, and they're like, oh dear God, <laughs> like there's so many people I have to like end and like Ted and Row, they're fantastic artists, but they like they really like to get down into the detail and like because sometimes you'll just get like artists who will just be like, whatever, it's a crowd scene. I'll just have like a whole bunch of like little floating heads. But like, yeah, that looks like a bunch of people, you know, and like what one is valid and the other is valid, but like having to come in and like individually color each person's like hoop earrings or whatever <laughs> well and i'm picturing like all those old george perez like jla avengers covers where like there's 300 characters all in the same place and you know yeah. you go back and there's coloring mistakes where like someone's boots are miscolored but then you also have big ones where like someone's <laughs> skin is miscolored like, oh, <laughs> like but, that, can be, that can be very problematic too. The, the way they used to um uh the way they used to color was insane because they <clears throat> they only had access to like a what was it like 90 colors and so that's why um batman and superman's like costumes are so um different because that's like literally the only colors they had like access to was kind of like ah oh, batman batman is black and superman is blue you know but the um the way they used to do it was that they would get they get in like a printed sheet of the art and um the so like a professional colorist would come in and they would actually write down the color code and then they would send it off to someone else who would then paint in those color codes. So something be like um, Y33, for example, for like a, like a shade of yellow for like the sky. And then they would have to, they would be mailing these back and forth. So you can kind of understand why there'd be like a lot of, um, uh, there'd be like a lot of problems with those. I know they used one of the studios yeah. for that actually used to be in um, Dublin where they, they would mail every, they would mail all the physical art to Dublin and they would, um, map out all the colors and then they send it to someone else and they would actually print out the colors and then they would send it to the printing press back in America. So like <laughs> the fact that like the characters look like they are is kind of amazing in a way. <laughs> so, <laughs> the process must have been insane. <laughs> well, and in the early 60s books, they often didn't even credit the colorist. Uh, it, it just, oh no, yeah. yeah. yeah that just, I don't know any of the colorists and they, they did, um, for the limited palettes they had, they did like incredible work for what it was, you know, like they're so, they're so bright and distinctive. And they, a lot of the, um, 
they really use use like a lot of the limited tools. Now you have like sixteen thousand colors you can mess with, but like back then it was it was incredible what they were doing. Yeah, actually, wow. I was going to ask about that a little bit because I have a lot of interest in kind of the history, I guess, of coloring, and I think it's super interesting how much the tech behind it has changed, you know, as you mentioned, they used to, I mean, I think maybe even like at a certain point, like 60 colors or something like that. I think like it's just changed and improved so much, but also that there were always kind of gender politics in play, like as you were noting before, Bar, because it used to be like the job that you could get, right? If like you were, there was like penciler stuff was kind of out of the out of the realm of possibility. But I think that that also means that a lot of people, you know, who weren't men did incredible work helping to build what comics are that usually get kind of disregarded in the story of comics, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. please go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, sir. Well, that was it. I was basically just going to ask, like, do you have a favorite classic colorist? Like, obviously I'm a big fan of, you know, um, Glynis Oliver on the X-Men and Tatiana Wood doing all of those gorgeous DC covers of the 70s and the 80s. And of course, going back into the 60s, you have like Marie Severin, who was, you know, ultimately did so much work at Marvel. So I was just wondering if there was any of those that ever like really stood out to you, I guess, in a way that made you kind of like look and remember their names. And I was also just kind of curious because you were talking about the behind the scenes a little Mm -hmm. bit of like, yeah, they only had so many, but they were doing incredible work. And I think that that really shows if you look at like Marie Severin's EC work, right? Like it's kind of pulling in these browns and kind of like reds and all of this to kind of create this like almost dissonant, but it like, it looks like, you know, like rot, you know, it kind of like helps to define what horror comics ultimately became. And I think that that's a big part of the language of creating these comics. So yeah. Did you have any favorites? And I guess, did you just have any thoughts on that? And I actually don't know a lot about the, can you hear me? Okay, by the way, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, I'm having a couple of problems with my um, thing. Um, that the, um, I unfortunately don't know too too much about kind of like the original coloring because I, this is not really something I would have. So I, I didn't really have access to comics when I was younger sure. at all. So I didn't actually, it's not something, um, you didn't get them in, comp, in like bookstores and things like that. Like I, I didn't have, um, there weren't, there wasn't even manga in Ireland until I was about thirteen or fourteen, so like you just wouldn't be able to act like if you wanted to access this stuff, you would have to go to like, a, you would have to go into town to like the one of I think two comic book shops that were open back then, in the country, and um like and you and you know for like a thirteen year old and like I remember walking into like Sub City for example or one of the complex shops, I can't remember which one, and like being told that, you know, to get out basically because I was a girl. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so like, so to test it, like, I know, yeah, it's, uh, but like the, um, what you call it? Um, so yeah, I just, I'm not actually, I just don't know a lot about kind of like the old golden age and silver ages. I did, just didn't read them though. I didn't have access to them at all, sure. you know, back then. So like they, they did incredible work and I, I wish I knew more of them. I knew a lot of them were women as well. I know that the, um, and you actually knew one uh, older lady and she actually worked in the, um, uh, in the company in Dublin 
And she actually met Stan Lee way, way back in the day when he was over to kind of visit the colors and things like that. But like, they really, really did incredible work with the limited resources that they had. And like, I think, to be honest, they, um, uh, I want to say they, they very much defined like the, the style of comics of using like really, really broad, bright colors that you wouldn't like normally see. Like, I think, um, and things have kind of changed a little, like a little bit where kind of in, when you kind of get into like the 90s and um, I, I think it was kind of image that kind of really started using you know, the traditional airbrush style that became a very popular in DC and Marvel. Um, but like I think uh, DC Marvels are stepping back from that like a little bit these days and you're having more bold, brighter colors that you would see kind of in the golden age and silver age, which I, I like one one thing is great and the other thing is great i always kind of like those broad like bright bold colors though but i do think they're it's easier for narrative storytelling because you have to kind of remember that like uh, a reader will only spend like what three seconds looking at a panel anyway so if you're if you're like breaking your back like you know coloring something but the, um yeah I, I really do wish i had kind of more access to the kind of stuff so i just wouldn't really know any of those kind of like you're kind of you're saying names to me and i'm like oh man i have to go and look at those people <laughs> but i yeah. just i just wouldn't have known about them you know <laughs> and now they're doing a lot of recoloring that i think um you know to varying degrees of success sometimes it's like a touch-up that makes it kind of pop in ways that it didn't before um because we we're looking at like really bad paper quality but you know then there's stuff where you know they're just totally overhauling and it changes the whole mood of the book so another yeah. question i had was i remember uh the director jim jarmusch once talking about how if color is unnecessary to the film, if it's adding unnecessary information, then he'll just cut it and film the whole thing in black and white. And I think that that's true a lot of times. Like I'll think of a book like Love and Rockets or something where I'm like, I have no idea where color would even like fit into this, right? Yeah. But then there's ones where it's like, you cannot imagine it without the colors, right? Yeah. So I think that there's definitely a lot of give and take, but I was wondering if you when you're uh, doing coloring, do you interact with the story on that level? Like, is that something that kind of comes up for you? As in, like, do I sometimes think this would be better black and white? Or No, no. As in, um, like, what am I doing? Like, how am I adding, extenuating, like, all of that kind of stuff? Mm. Like, are you interacting with the story? Like, not <laughs> not if it would look better in black and yeah, white. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, I get you. <laughs> um, out of a job otherwise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, so... Um, I like to think of kind of like a kind of an artist kind of like a writer laying the framework and artist kind of adding sort of like the um, what you call it, uh, kind of the, the kind of the meat of everything and then really kind of a colorist coming in and kind of adding emotion in a way, you know, where like it's um, and not to say that kind of like you can't display emotion, obviously, through the kind of black and white art, of course you can. But like when it comes to kind of coloring comics, like you're 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 kind of adding sort of like the um kind of distinct storytelling narrative um color emotion to it. So like in, in like in certain situations I'll come in, I'm kind of like this is an extremely sad scene. Obviously, I'm not gonna pop it but bright yellows, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go with the mood, kind of add different lighting. I tend to um not really do what you would call sort of like natural lighting generally. Like I'll I'll kind of kind of do zany colors that kind of fit the mood. And really for me, it's about making it a little bit easier for the the reader to also just kind of interpret what they're seeing on the page where like if you are 
if you're an artist and you're finding that people are taking double takes, <coughs> excuse me, um, at your work, uh, you know, an encoder can really help with that. We're kind of like, you know, making things distinctive on the page, you know, leading the eye on where things need to be. We're like, do they need to focus on the door? Do you need to focus on the person? Do they need to focus on the thing, whatever's in this person's hand? Do we need to make it bright yellow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, like for me, I don't, I don't want to like step over anyone because uh, everyone is really important to the comic book making process from like uh, writing to lettering. Um, but like for me, I always kind of feel that I'm kind of adding like the emotion to the page, especially when they're like pages that are like in intended to be colored, you know, there's a specific way that you can kind of do black and white and you can um, uh, make scenes distinctive enough in certain ways so that the, the reader can interpret what they're saying. But obviously when you're, you're an artist and you're drawing it to be colored, that's another thing altogether. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I, I published a graphic novel years ago, and I remember that process of putting the words down on paper, coming up with the, I, I did the storyboarding with little stick figures, right? And then the professional art started to come back and it was like giving birth to a child. I know that is not an apt comparison, but there was just this like, <gasps> and then the inks came in. And then when the colors were added, it just felt like magic. It really was adding all the emotion that, that had been missing previously. It's a magical process that took four years for one book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're indie, that's how things work. Uh, but really, really beautiful work. Tree, it's wonderful to get to know you and your process. Um, you have also, I just want to note quickly, and we'll, we'll, we'll only mention this in passing, but you've worked on a number of books that feature queer characters. Uh, hearing you talk about the, the gay club that you got to color, West Coast Avengers, and other titles that you've got to feature with characters who are queer. Uh, speaking as a panel of, of queer people who are introducing you, it is so wonderful to see that representation and the love and the joy that are being poured into these characters that we love so much. Uh, particularly characters like Kate Bishop, who are not queer, but just surround themselves with queer people. <laughs> like, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Anything you want to say about that before we continue? Um, yeah, I think that the, the push, especially from like editors at Marvel and DC, like they are really, really like fighting for it. And sometimes it can be a bit hard when you're kind of, um, you're kind of working with uh, kind of, kind of larger companies that you know and not to say anything better but the people like you know the, the companies that I work for but you know you, you're massive conglomerate companies are kind of more interested in kind of how it looks on the accounting books than anything else right. but like the um the it there's been such a massive push and i think really um comics has become so queer lately um and it's so fantastic to see and like compared to like what i would have seen when i was younger and i you know i would have like 13 year old me would have loved to have seen that sort of stuff but you just didn't get it really back then. And I think it's really, especially in the last five or six years, it's really, really exploded. And just kind of people, and it, it, it's just, it's better, it's, you know, better interpretations of, of characters, you know, better representation, people. And, you know, when it comes down to it, I do think like uh, queer people um, engage with this media a lot more. <laughs> I want to say than the straights, you know, like, um, <laughs> the, you know, it, it's, we, you kind of you see so many so much representation of um queer people in comics and i think you more see in kind of typical um kind of in hollywood and things like that you know because i think it's like a, it's a really good space to kind of explore those things um and there's a lot yeah. of creative freedom when it comes to it as well well the whole world is gaying up a little bit uh, to share oh, yeah. <laughs> to share a very personal story i had two children before coming out and one of my driving forces in coming out was realizing I could either raise my children to be 
uh, like as a closeted person who doesn't like himself very much or as a vibrant out version of myself who leads with, you know, love and kindness. And, uh, and so coming out was like a big act of courage at the time. Now my children are 13 and 10 and my oldest has come out as gay and my 10 year old is non-binary. And I thought, you know, I, th I think regularly had I never come out, they wouldn't feel safe to do that either. I'd be perpetuating the problem mm -hmm. all over again. Oh queer, representation, God, yeah. queer representation is crucial oh. and it's all around us and the whole world is getting gayer all the time. <laughs> oh, I mean, good, good for it. If it's like, I know I didn't come out uh, as bi until I was like 18 or 19. So I was so terrified and I aren't um, at the time. Uh, it's a lot better than it was, but uh, it's extremely Catholic country. It's sure. very difficult kind of growing up in those situations, but it's like, they, the, for me, like uh, I was teaching a class and there were just so many kind of gay and non-binary and trans kids. And um, this is kind of a kind of an animation comics class that I was teaching a while back. Um, and it was just so fantastic to see when it was just being kind of like back in the day. It would be kind of like, oh, did you hear that one who's gay, like three states over or something like that? You know, <laughs> just this mythical, legendary gay person you heard about. <laughs> I watch a, I watch a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race and there is the drag queen Blue Hydrangea who on the show has done a lot of public conversations about what it's like to be a, a drag queen in Dublin. And it's been it's been fascinating to learn a little uh, but I'm thrilled. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know you were by. Thank you for, uh, for, for joining our queer league. <laughs> uh, I, I had a question um, ahead, for Mark. you. Um, for someone that wants to get into what you're doing, to get into coloring, because I work in television and film, and I love my colorists. Because without that, our shows will look absolutely horrible. Um, but for someone that wanted to get into what you're doing, what would be your recommendation? what would be the skills that you would tell them to concentrate on or the steps that they should take to start? Um, okay, so I think when it comes to kind of doing comics, what people need to be aware of first is that doing comics is incredibly difficult. It is really a labor of love and you are not going to make a huge amount of money doing it. So um, to, to quote one of my best friends, uh, please just try making a comic first off. <laughs> See if you like it. Um, you know, if you really, really enjoy the process, that's fine. If it's um, if it's like an absolute grinding hell, then maybe it's not for you, and that's also perfectly fine. The um, and like from there, like really, you need to find like yourself a group of peers, and this could be like a group of people like local, and really just kind of start making comics together, and like start improving and start beginning to understand like the printing process. Print some of your own comics. Just try and build slowly, kind of build up a portfolio that you can look at in terms of like coloring really the same thing. Try and kind of get in with your artist friends and try and start coloring their work. Um, really don't feel fear about like emailing uh, uh, what you call like a professional and being like, hey, could you look at a portfolio? Could I improve things? Go to conventions, maybe try and like attend portfolio. Like, really it's about improving. And you will find as time goes on that, you know, you start to build up kind of contacts and things like that. And I don't, as well, you're going to get really frustrated because it is kind of very difficult and it is really, a lot of it is based on look, it's kind of right place, right time. <laughs> like I think I really only got my own, my, my first Marvel job because I had literally talked to Ricky Purton, the, the talent scout. And um, it just so happened there was like an opening and I had, I had physically gone to Seattle <laughs> and he emailed me just as I was about to get on the plane to go okay. back to Dublin. So <laughs> like it's um, really like a lot of it is look, don't feel dissuaded from that. Um, there's a lot of like really good uh, online courses you can look at in terms of coloring. Um, really, really pay attention to like what other colorists are doing. 
um, kind of there's plenty of YouTube videos, like learn how to flash as well. I think it's very important. Like if you're going to start anything with coloring, like learn how to flash and maybe even like start doing a lot of colors will actually start as flatters and then they'll slowly build up their skills and then go on to being colorists. So like really it's about kind of building a strong network and being very, very open to criticism, but not so open that you're being trampled on <laughs> at the same time. You're gonna you're gonna get people who are like kind of like this is a terrible use of yellow. And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, like it's <laughs> um and that's fine as well. Just kind of take, you know, don't don't try and internalize it, just use it to make yourself better. Sarah just had the best yawn and stretch I've ever seen. I'm kind of jealous. Like I want one of my own now. <laughs> my body, it is done. <laughs> it's just like, why did you not sleep enough for the last like 39 years, basically right now? Like that's what's happening. It's trying to catch up with me and I'm trying to run from it <laughs> as I always do. <laughs> Well, Tree, I'm a big fan of your work. I have been for a long time. How wonderful to get to know the person behind the, the coloring. Uh, I, I, you've done a ton at Marvel. We'll be posting some of your colors and images as we're promoting this episode. Uh, just thank you for sharing your, your talents. Uh, Bar and Sarah, of course, I'm always uh, inspired by the both of you as well. Bar's cosplay and Sarah, you are the cattiest, most wonderful co-host. I love it. <laughs> it's so much fun to nerd out with you both. So with this, let's transition into our issue review. Uh, I have had the chance to interview Roy Thomas, who wrote this issue on the podcast. And, he, and we didn't talk a lot about Avengers, but he did tell me his Avengers run back then, he poured so much love into. And his X-Men stuff, he was kind of like, eh. <laughs> Which I think we see reflected, because there's a lot of great Avengers wow. stuff. Uh, there are uh, there are a lot of things happening in the Avengers book at this time, but I'll just give a brief recap because it's not super consequential to our X-Men fans, just for our 60s Marvel nerds uh, who enjoy the podcast. This is uh, for you more than anything. So Hank Pym is a scientist who specializes in a bunch of nonsensical, unrelated science, such as insect communication, biology, robots, and like shrinking and growing shit. And he mixes them all together. And uh, his backstory, he married a woman in Hungary named Maria Travoya, who was killed. It turns out way later, we learned she had a baby first. That's the character Nadia Van Dyne, who is the unstoppable wasp, if anybody knows that character. Uh, but later when he's working, he meets a girl who's much younger than him named Janet Van Dyne, who reminds him of his first wife. She is a fashion designer. She is the daughter of some rich people. She's an heiress. And uh, he ends up giving her wasp powers. She can shrink down and grow little wings out of her back and sting people with her bioelectric zap. He's turned himself into Ant-Man. He can shrink down. He has a helmet that allows him to communicate with ants. And these two are part of the original Avengers, all alongside the powerhouses of Iron Man and Hulk and Thor. Uh, later, Captain America gets added to that mix. We've had a lot of psychology explored by writers over the years about Hank Pym never feeling like he fit in. He was always the guy who was compensating or trying hard. He's literally the teeny man writing an ant. So early on in Avengers, he turns on to turns into Giant Man and later into Goliath. And right around this time, he uh, in Avengers 59, uh, a weird character named Yellow Jacket shows up and claims to have killed Goliath. Now, I'm just going to give spoilers. It turns out this character is Hank Pym himself. This is not new information. The spoilers are over 50 years old, but it's the big revelation at the end of this issue. <laughs> he grabs Wasp in a way where he is very kind of aggressive with her. He kisses her and it turns out she realizes, oh, this is Hank Pym. 
Then uh, she's been waiting for Hank to propose for a long time, but now he's having a clear mental breakdown. She thinks he has schizophrenia. turns out it's bipolar. We'll talk about that later. And she's like, yeah, let's get married. This is a great idea. And all of the Avengers are like, what the fuck is happening? How could you? And that's kind of where this issue starts off. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot. We're going to talk about Jane and Hank <laughs> just for fun today. The X-Men only appear in one panel in this issue, but I chose this issue anyway because it's just so much fucking fun. Uh, we're going to start out with uh, just looking at the cover of this issue for just a moment. It is insane. There is a lot <laughs> happening. There are floating heads of Avengers above uh, Wasp, who is getting uh, in her wedding dress wrapped up by a giant python who's coming out of a snake. Yellow Jacket is rushing at her as the circus of crime is in the background and the letters uh, yellow on black at the bottom say, till death do us part. What are your thoughts on this cover? I love it. <laughs> tell, me, tell me your reactions just to, <laughs> on opening this up. This cover is so fun. Um, and when I say fun, it just brought the drama. It just brings the drama. It brings the energy. Um, just, I want to dive into it. This snake around her, all of the energy, her facial expressions, um, Yellow Jacket's approach. It, it was just so dope. John Bashem is like, amazing. I, <laughs> I just love how they're trying to transmit so much information on this cover all at once. Yes. So you got your Hawkeye, you got your Avengers, you got your your criminal masterminds, you got your your steak, you got your cake, you got the the wedding. You know, like there's <laughs> there's like um there's usually like covers these days. Uh, they'll kind of just be sort of like a I not necessarily all the time, but they kind of like an abstract kind of interesting drawing of like the the character the main character that's in it but like i think really they're they're trying to like they're like really trying to sell comics here so they're kind of like you know if you like hawkeye he's in this issue you know like you got the floating head of him there uh sarah any thoughts oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> i have a lot of thoughts about this um yeah exactly what you all said i love you mentioned that your favorite villains are the circus of crime we're going to talk about them more <laughs> but they are unbeatable on this cover <laughs> just the expressions everything princess right? python has those the um hands on her waist kind of just making like <laughs> truly i mean a plus facial expressions and I love this snake because, <laughs> yeah, I I just got finished. Um, I sometimes guest on a podcast called Batman and the Outcasters. It's about the Batman and the Outsiders podcast. We did one where they go to the zoo and there is a Komodo dragon and it's like blue. You're just like, that does not look like a Komodo dragon, which is weird because they do exist, right? Like I've seen a Komodo dragon um, picture and this is not what they look like. That's how I feel about the snake here where I'm like, no snake has ever looked like this snake. <laughs> and yet it is such a snake, right? Like it is like the A plus most fabulous snake of all time. And uh, it's going right after our friend Janet. And I'm concerned. I have a lot of feelings about this. <laughs> the other Avengers look like they're mm, dismayed, I'm going to say. I I would say, if anything, I don't totally understand their facial expressions because mine would be like the widest eyes ever and just being like, what? 
<laughs> like Janet's being attacked by a snake and they're like, oh, Janet's being attacked by a snake. Like they're like very brooding about it, which I think is really interesting <laughs> for a response. But yeah, so, they're not letting their emotions get the best of them on this cover. <laughs> so I'm going to cover the first five pages quickly. We've, we've each got five pages and then we're going to talk about this. And there's a lot of content, but I'll cover it quickly. Page one, we see Captain America holding the wedding invitation. His reflection is showing. He's very scandalized. Uh, keep in mind, they do not know who Yellow Jacket is. And I know this is for narrative, uh, narrative drama, but let me just read this out loud. Miss Janet Van Dyne requests the pleasure of your company at her marriage to the superhero known as Yellow Jacket. On Tuesday, the 21st of November at four o'clock in the afternoon at the Avengers Mansion, said marriage to endure. And then it's giant letters with an exclamation point. Till death do us part. Just mm. if I got that invitation in the mail, I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would tell you what's about to happen in this marriage, honestly. So, I mean, this is truly just foreshadowing, but I do exactly. also love that kind of Captain America. You can see him, he's apparently chilling in his house. I assume this is a house because he's opening his mail, um, and like chilling in his house with a shield on his back and like in full <laughs> costume as well. Which is like, <laughs> he's ready. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but he's more shocked about this invitation than he is on the cover where Janet's literally being attacked by an enormous snake. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, ah, all right, it's a Tuesday. So, uh, on page two, we see the crowd assembling for the wedding outside the mansion. And there are a lot of name drops here. Someone mentions John Henry in reference to autographs. Uh, someone mentions Frank Sinatra saying, you know, popular uh, Captain America is even, even more popular than him, basically. Uh, um, and then there's a guy who mentions, uh, who, uh, do, 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 it's them. Oh, say, can you see threads of his, uh, who's his tailor? Betsy Ross. So we get that a minute later, someone, or, or just before that, someone mentions Dick and Liz. Anybody who know Dick, who Dick and Liz is offhand? Oh yeah. Um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard. Okay. Yeah. Like Hollywood power couple from the yes. 60s, right? Which is, Obsessed. Uh, which, which is fantastic. Uh, Captain America I was rushes. So in. lost. I was so lost on my red deck. I was like, who's Dick in the mess? Like, I was like, who could that be? Any There's, tabloid of the era will tell you everything okay. that they were doing. But I can see comics from the 90s, like people now reading like, who's Polly Shore? Or you know, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> these name drop references. Uh, Captain Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Tree. <laughs> but it's just, just I was reading it and I was like, I like because I, I don't read like a lot of these things. It was like name dropping so much. And I was like, you, you feel like you want to have the wiki open on what was I did. I was like, what the heck is is that? Just open the wiki. <laughs> Deep dive, basically. <laughs> uh Captain America rushes inside. We gotta remember a lot of these characters have their solo books. Uh Jarvis, who is the Avengers best character, uh greets him. Uh Black Panther is the only character of color in this entire book, and they always in these eras call him things like jungle man which yeah. Hawkeye does on this oh, page yeah. which is always very uncomfortable bar anything you want to say about that being uh being a person of color yourself oh my god when I tell you as a child reading that I was really excited just to see someone of color represented now I'm like oh my god <laughs> like this is so crazy all of the references instead of just saying Black Panther, everybody else just got called their names pretty much. And to see, go back and read things and hear all of these other adages for people of color just really hurts me to now, a 
the Avengers toss around nicknames all the time. Giant Man gets called things like high pockets. You know, they're, they're always tossing around nicknames, but their, their references for Black Panther are always about, not always, but generally about like Africa or the jungle, which makes it right. racist and it's uncomfortable. Right. And I can deal with, I can deal with nicknames that are just nicknames, but when it's just always that reference, um, for example, I was at a, um, I forgot what game was we going to play. We were at, I was at a game, a card game, and we were getting in groups to play the game and the people there were like, all right, giving each other's names. They were fun names. And it was like, you'll be called this, you'll be called this. Because I and another person of color were in another group, they prefixed it with either black or color. It was just so weird for me. And I'm like, I am a television producer. I am a cosplayer. I am all of these things. And you cannot think of any other adjective for my group name except for that. So it, it just, when I still read it now, I'm like, ah, yeah, but I understand. That was yesteryear. Hopefully we are changing. <laughs> Hopefully we are evolving. So I do understand that, that what he said, 69. So, I mean, that, to, to have him on the page in 69 was probably a way more of an accomplishment than anything else. So we had to take it. It can be both. We can be concerned <laughs> yeah. all at once. Uh, it took me back to the his first appearance in Fantastic Four, where the whole time you're just like, ah, <laughs> ah. Uh, literally, just before we recorded, I saw the uh, Wakanda Forever uh, uh, trailer, which just looks wonderful. I'm so excited. So it's it's uh, it's a different era. Everybody, <laughs> we have different things happening, but still, these are these are immortalized. Uh, so Janet uh, arrives back here with uh, Yellow Jacket. All of the Avengers are justifiably concerned, even though they're a little bit condescending toward her. Uh, but she's keeping a secret. She knows this is Pym and she's just not telling anyone because she wants to get married. Instead of getting this man mental help, she's like, let's get this done now. We have to make this happen now, now, now. We're in a hurry. Uh, we'll talk about that. It's concerning. Uh, Jenna is, I love her, but it's, she's a little complicit here too. Uh, actually, this is probably a good time for this conversation. Let's 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 pause here briefly. So what has happened here, we, we learned at the end of this issue, is uh, Hank Pym has inhaled some sort of gas that has released some sort of other personality. Now, other writers in the future have gone back and tried to explain this is actually bipolar disorder. And Pim is a character who suffers from manic episodes. He's passed that on to his daughter, Nadia, who's the unstoppable wasp. Uh, they, they result in uh, uh, extended periods of he like locks himself in his lab. He just tries to work all the time. He does really big things. There's the famous story in the future uh, when he hits the wasp during an manic episode. Then he builds a robot to destroy the Avengers so that he can disable it himself to get the credit. Uh, it's an uncomfortable story, but pretty classic at the same time. He also has periods of crippling depression, resulting in things like his suicide story and West Coast Avengers. Uh, he's a pretty complex character. Prior to this, he's also created Ultron, who has gone on to murder millions of people and like basically destroy planets. Uh, and Kurt Busiek tells the story in the third volume of Avengers that he based Ultron on his own brain. Now, in the 60s, we get a lot of stories about characters. This happened with the angel in the Iron Man story. An atomic bomb goes off and it unlocks Angel's dark side, which, you know, is basically Archangel. But you see something happen. Someone breathes in a gas or, or, or gets exposed to some sort of energy and they turn evil for a period of time. It's like the old soap opera trope, like 
the hammer hits you on the head and now you're the dark version of bar fox instead of, <laughs> instead of your normal <laughs> nice self uh, so this is a common story but a lot of future writers have gone back and explored this but janet uh janet calls it schizophrenia in a little while she's like oh he's schizophrenic but we're still married no big deal like we'll get to that in a minute sarah i would love to hear your thoughts about janet van dyne uh, as portrayed at her wedding <laughs> this era is really bad for janet it's it's bad before i think that yeah the first bunch of years of the avenger she has her moments but it's hard to read because she kind of comes into her own after their divorce like there's the scene where she muscles in on avengers leadership everybody's like oh she's going through a divorce so she's going to want to take a leave of absence and then she shows up and she's like you know what i think i should be the leader of the avengers and everybody's so taken aback by it that she just is able to sweep the table and take avengers leadership she's leader for over 50 issues i believe and she absolutely kills it she's one of the best leaders of the avengers ever agreed pym never especially has that kind of redeeming arc i'm gonna say that janet minimizes hank's health issues perpetually wait wait that is, does she does she minimize them or shrink them that's an ant uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh god yeah she shrinks them to the size of an ant but um yeah no she constantly is kind of trying to play it off and in some ways i understand because a lot of the gag between them is is like he's so into science and work and she's presented as being comparatively frivolous and that she only wants to be the wasp she only wants to be in the avengers because of hank that changes significantly going forward and i think she becomes the better hero between the two and i think that that is like not even a close competition <laughs> considering how many terrible things he's done but also the fact that you look at this and you have to be like she has her eye on the prize she's trying to get married the last issue had one of the most uncomfortable pages i've ever read where he grabs her and kisses her you already mentioned that and kind of the lead up to this issue so i have to say that there's a really toxic dynamic between these two and it's never not uncomfortable to read because it has kind of this yeah like it's toxic it's it becomes abusive for sure and i think that in some ways him dating like this younger woman who idolizes him but doesn't understand the reality of his situation is also still abusive on his role like i think that he does a lot of really terrible things that it's hard to justify but you through this issue particularly she's basically just like he has a mental disorder that i don't understand and i don't care because i need to get the wedding ring you know so it's a rough one, honestly, it's rough. Yeah. And it does foreshadow how badly their relationship goes down the line. And this is an era where, I mean, everyone working on the books is men, like 90, 95%. And, yeah. uh, and I think you're supposed to be kind of like you're watching an episode of I Love Lucy and like Ricky spanks Lucy and you're like, oh, ha ha. Or yeah. look at her, she's up to her antics again. And I think that's almost how you're supposed to treat Jan here. Like, oh, she got him to marry her, even though he was, didn't know who he was. That's cute, silly Jan. Yeah. But, I'm like a little bit confused really we're like I, I guess it's just kind of if you, you need to look at it through the lens of kind of like oh they're crazy women they all want to marry this is marriage <laughs> of the brain you know like um so I was reading it, it was kind of like why does she want to marry him I don't really <laughs> understand this we're like it's um I guess like she just the, the ex I think the explanation is kind of it's meant to be like the 
um, uh, what you got? It's like a you're meant to like fill in the gaps really like you know, being like a like a 70s sort of man we're kind of like ah you know women <laughs> you know and I i'm just... gonna i'm gonna make this rated r for just a bit but i hope everybody's comfortable but i'm saying if pimp can shrink things he can also grow things and maybe janet's <laughs> really into what happens in the bedroom <laughs> trying to secure the bag that is true that yeah. You gotta lock that down. You gotta put a ring in it, definitely. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, with Janet, it's like this is her bad era, and there's it goes for a little while longer. But whenever she gets out of it, she's pretty consistently out of it. Whereas Hank Pym goes on <laughs> to do so many terrible things, and also continuously is a creep to women, like in uh west coast avengers he pulls a bunch of like nice guy stuff on tigra that is also incredibly uncomfortable to read so yeah, yeah, yeah. the fact that they've kind of tried to smooth this character over i respect it i'm like you know what i'm willing to sign on for that because i'm so sketched out by this era you're obviously never going to get rid of him as a character so the way that they've kind of turned it around is to make it be a conversation about mental illness and mental mm -hmm. health I think that that's about all they can do. It's like you can't change the past in many respects when we're reading this issue. But it's also you can try to do better going forward. When they try yes. to do that with Hank Pym, that's important. But the way that it's usually dealt with is like, yeah, I did some wild things. But it's like, yeah, but you were also consistently really misogynistic, too. So like that's never really a part of the conversation so far that I've seen. And like it's all kind of done in service of like validating his character, whereas like Janet usually like has often been treated as someone who just can't in the violent relationship or like why do women keep going back or like whatever thing like that. And honestly, that I think is really uncomfortable, extremely disgusting stuff. But um, <laughs> if you could get past all that, <laughs> he'll just do a part. <laughs> That's a that is a lot to get past. You it sure that. is. You know, yeah. You know, Ch Chad, I love that. Um, I used to always tell people if I had a power, it would be flight and telekinesis. But um, this power you talked about that Hank could potentially have might be something I'm going to um, add to my list of wishes here. <laughs> a little growage, a little shrinkage when you need it. <laughs> when, when needed, when needed. <laughs> um, so on page five, we see Jarvis just working his fucking ass off as always. He's got the minister you there. He's, he's, <laughs> he's welcoming the nice. caterers. Everybody's sitting on their asses while he runs around. But the caterers have been replaced by the circus of crime who are then able to bypass the Avengers security system. They literally just bound his hands, gag him and hang him from a hook. And he stays there for the whole issue. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about Jarvis more. He's one of my favorites. The Circus of Crime are super campy villains. They have fought the X-Men a couple of times over the years, including Gen X. There's also a weird mention of Blob trying to join the Circus of Crime once, but they turned him down. These are crazy characters. Most of them have no powers. Uh, let me run down the roster that's here really quickly. We have uh, Ringmaster, who is Maynard Tibble. He has a hat that can hypnotize you. Uh, we have the clown who is Elliot Franklin, and he does clown stuff. He rides a unicycle and like punches and throws stuff at people. Uh, we've got Princess Python, who I adore, uh, who is Zelda Dubois. She charms big giant snakes that her are like her best friend. And then she sends them into battle perpetually. And then is always like, oh, no, my snake, these superheroes 
Thor punched my snake. Why would you do that? Well, why would you fucking send your snake into battle in the first place, Zelda? Uh, and then we have Cannonball or the human Cannonball. His name is Jack Pulver, which is amazing. Uh, he shoots himself out of a cannon. He has a little metal hat and he runs into shit. And then finally, the Gambonos, who are uh, the flying Gambonos sometimes. It's Ernesto and Luigi Gambono, and they are just evil trapeze artists. Uh, I adore these characters. <laughs> their general MO is they hold circuses. Ringmaster will hypnotize the crowd, and then the circus will rob the crowd, and then heroes will inevitably stop them. Uh, the Ringmaster in particular is a character that's portrayed pretty kind of rapey and gross in a lot of his storylines but classic versions of him in the 60s are super fun. I also want to tell a story really quickly. Princess Python goes on to join a team of Captain America snake-themed villains called the Serpent Society. Yep. And go back to go back to a college version of me. This is how I ended up getting into the Marvel handbooks. Uh, I used to, in college, write fan fiction, and I would take teams of Marvel supervillains and write Survivor fan fiction. So like the show Survivor, and I would write an episode every week and my reading public would get to vote off whoever they wanted off next. And the last person left would win. So I would come up with like a character arc for every story and I actually put a ton of work into it. My first two seasons featured the Masters of Evil. My third season featured the Serpent Society. And I got to write Princess Python in this, which is not canon at all. But I wrote her as this kind of prissy spoiled cheerleader who just like doted over snakes and nobody understood her and she was easily the most unlikable character but I did some fun stuff with her and she ended up winning she won the million dollars in my survivor competition so <laughs> like I got to spend a lot of time with her and I, I actually wow. really love her so nobody has read this in like 20 years and nobody remembers it I don't think but uh, I actually really love Princess Python for for that reason I uh, fucking love this team uh, let me turn it over to Sarah for pages uh, six through ten yeah, definitely. So Jarvis, we've got on the hook. The Circus of Crime fully reveals themselves. The Ringmaster and his Circus of Crime. So the Ringmaster is trying to definitely take center stage in a way that I don't think is fully warranted. I think we all know that Princess Python is actually the star of the show. <laughs> but we have... Oh man, Ew, it's almost too good to be true. You're right, buddy. So they're all just kind of hanging like, uh, yeah, we just get like a nice like shot of what they're doing, I guess. And I, to this day, like I've read this issue maybe like five times. I'm not really sure what their end game is, but move on from them, you know, and whatever they're up to. And we have a Hawkeye and Crystal, everyone's favorite inhuman. <laughs> I know. Why she's do we love Crystal? For, yeah, she's in this for almost no reason. And it's really fun because it's, uh, I believe, is that Sue that's on like the next page? Mm -hmm. um, so we've got Sue and Crystal from over in the Fantastic Four. Crystal's over there ruining lives, having a grand old time. <laughs> Love her so much. This is certainly like if you're looking at, you know, the Avengers of this era, this is certainly the real housewives. Right. And oh, so we have they're getting her ready. Janet Van Dyne is fully living in a world outside of reality entirely <laughs> and doesn't care. And she gets in Crystal's face. Crystal's like, do you ever think that like maybe logic and Janet's like, absolutely not marriage first, logic later. So co totally tells her off, right? And then everybody's kind of like, okay, well, you look beautiful in your wonderful wedding dress. Let's move on. So when we move on, it's to the, I guess, like all the men basically, like Jean Grey is on this page. And then it's like 20 men, which like that's Jean Grey's life for decades. 
But and I just I, there's we get a one page shot of the guest. Let me just run through. We got we yeah. got Hawkeye, Hawkeye, Black Knight, Daredevil, Human Torch, Jean Grey, Iceman, Beast and Angel, Black Panther, Mister Fantastic, The Thing, Doctor Strange, Vision, Iron Man, Captain America, Yellow Jacket, Spider Man, and Nick Fury, all in one page, and it's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. <laughs> they make a note that nobody is drinking alcohol and it is a flat out lie because they are all holding <laughs> martini glasses. So I appreciate that you felt the need to say that this is all non-alcoholic, but you are liars and you are lying <laughs> to our face because they are getting toasted right now. Look, exactly. look at Ben Grimm. Is he drinking a mocktail? You know, like look at the face he has. He's smoking a cigar, which like, what is it like a non-alcoholic? like cigar too like it's like a non-nicotine cigar so he, nick fury everybody's smoking indoors <laughs> this is like before that mattered right and nobody uh, notices that jarvis is missing <laughs> nobody notices that jarvis is missing and i you know what later uh, down the line Jarvis and Janet Van Dyne have some really incredible scenes and I consider them like if if Marvel ever comes to me to be like hey I, do you got any pitches it's literally like the Jarvis and Janet Van Dyne <laughs> like team up series um, because I'm obsessed with their friendship but she has a lot going on right now you guys so she doesn't notice they certainly don't notice Johnny is like Johnny Storm is like on the make right now he's looking over at Bing grin thinking of ways to prank him because what else is he gonna do so we go to the next page and we've got the wedding yellow jacket is still being quite the creep like they're like you pronounce you man and wife you may kiss the bride mr yellow jacket and yellow jack say no more reverend and like kisses her this is like every kiss from from this guy is like always like very uh aggressive i'm gonna say it's like this is like a wedding kiss like you're a, you're a hundred percent allowed to do it so i don't know why it entails you being like <laughs> like intense so this guy continues to be a weirdo hawkeye is so sick of it but he like he's just like you know what that's cool i mean i'm just like good friends with hank and you're marrying this guy so i guess i'm gonna go storm off if you read Avengers comics of this time, Hawkeye's role in every single issue is to storm off. He's basically the pre-Wolverine Wolverine. Like he's always <laughs> storming off. He goes his own way, bub, you know? And like, he's on a team, but he never acts like he's on a team. He's always like throwing a little fit. So he's kind of frustrating to read sometimes. Here, his storming off is for the best because he discovers the circus of crime are <laughs> just hanging out in the pantry or whatever probably just like scamming on free food right now right like, that's what i would be doing i think free buffet <laughs> it's a buffet for the wedding and they're just like Haha, through our evil methods we have secured ourselves endless bread basket like or they're, or they're in there working really hard to shove that python like, get in the fucking cake python now like, in right. the cake right <laughs> <laughs> is that where I stop or do I go to the next page? No, no, no you can stop there. Uh, Tree, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that you're getting a python into a cake. Um, this is a cardboard, I assume, with frosting. So the, the, the steak is constantly coming out, you know? <laughs> a plus. Just, just, just staple it on, so you know? <laughs> it's worth noting that Janet is in a dress and Yellow Jacket is in his full costume, which, exactly. is, uh, which is What crazy. is this man doing, right? I Tree, do what? love 
that like in all of kind of wedding things at this they always have because it's basically like a sea of white guys otherwise like it's um like they always have them in their costumes probably just to make them more distinct so you can tell who each person is it's <laughs> otherwise it's just seven blonde dudes with yeah. square jaws <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, Tree, what are your thoughts on Bashema's art and the colors here? But more importantly, what do you think of Janet Van Dyne's dress? I love the dress. Um, the I actually I love Sue's dress, especially in this. Like, um, it's just like a really kind of un unusual kind of lime like black dress but they've kind of accented a little bit with lime green and everything's like really nicely coming together that like Jan, Jan's dress here is beautiful I love the veil especially um, and like it, it fits really nicely it's a very um 70s dress you know with like the poofy sleeves and they've got like the mother of pearl around the neck and it's it's all it's all lovely really really nice kind oh, of I'm, just, I'm just realizing outside of the wasp Sue is the only hero there not in her costume yeah, but anyway, she's the only woman, but <laughs> she's in yeah. her little baby doll green. It's cute. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, re I actually really like her dress, but usually they'd have um, uh, they'd have have them in like more floor length things. But she has like a little retro style dress, which I think is kind of unusual for Sue. So it's cute. Mm -hmm. uh, and any thoughts on the Bashema art or, or the colors before we move forward? Um, again, beautiful. Everything is so distinct. Um, I love the use of like spot blacks throughout it. The um, like everything is so like there's there's it's such a busy issue. There's so many characters and there's so much happening. Um, and they've kind of brought it all together really nicely. The there's such a a good kind of um use of I like to call it like a, a dominating kind of color like there's a dominating color of yellow if you go back through the issue there's so many instances of yellow that they're using to kind of storytell you know to kind of bring us through the pages basically so like it's it's, re it's really it's really cool to see especially with kind of the limited color palette that they would have at the time uh, i want to check in with everybody before we continue are we okay going 10 15 minutes long is anybody in a, a big rush no i'm, uh, I'm good okay bar will you take us through 11 through 15 then tell us what happens I will. But first of all, I wanted to say um, when I'm reading stuff, because like you said, everybody's in the costume, right? And I'm wondering like why, but I had to try to justify it in my mind so I could get through it. So I was like, well, maybe since they don't know or trust Yellow Jacket, they had to stay in their, they couldn't reveal their secret identities to him because they didn't trust him. No like, these, are little, <laughs> these are the little things I try to do to try to make it work out. But <laughs> all right. So for my pages, so we have Hawkeye, like you said, the bratty tantrum Hawkeye, who has stormed off, but luckily he has found the culprits. And he is thinking that these people are part of Yellow Jacket's scheme or whatever he's trying to figure out Yellow Jacket is doing to Janet. And he commenced to fighting and trying to save the day. Um, the twins, the Gambino twins, get the one up on them and knock him down and knock him out which is cool because he didn't get a chance to yell, which would have put it into the story really quickly if they all came in. So that was nice. And as you said it before, we have that nice cigarette in there that we can't do now. Um, <laughs> so then we go out to the wedding. So this is funny to me. So when I read the older comics, I'm so impressed with the cattiness. I'm so impressed sometimes with the, the little knee-jerk things that they said. So I love that Black Knight that you can use the sword, but this is not my real one. It's a replica. <laughs> and, you know, this is just as good. So use this, but basically you're not getting my real stuff. 
And when they decided to cut the cake, um, interesting enough, the cake didn't go through the snake. But um, <laughs> but that made the snake just know it was time to come out and do its thing. And it jumped out and grabbed Janet as soon as possible and wrapped her up. So here comes my guy, Black Panther to the rescue. Um, this was his introduction, loved it. Um, he's so arrogant in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it's illegal. So I don't take it as a negative thing. He just knows what he can do and he's not afraid to say it. Um, I like that they've always presented him that way. And what's hilarious about the page that I'm on is as Black Panther comes in to help and Vision sends an optic glass, there's Yellow Jacket talking about it, what they did was no big deal. He could have done it with his stuff or his powers. But I'm thinking you were the closest to her. You were right next to her. Why are you talking about you could have done it instead of just doing it? Just, have, just taking one for the team there. And yeah, Jack is like, I could have done that. Yeah, it's just like, you just don't say, I could have done that. And then, like, little nuggets, even on this page, um, Lee Richards is like, can, can I help you look for the culprit? And then they're like, no, we don't need that. This is Avengers business. And it's like, well, if somebody's trying to murder us at the wedding, I think it's everybody's business, not just Avengers. <laughs> but these are the things that I crack up with when I'm reading this because they're so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Territorial yeah. in a lot of the comics from the rest of the year. And then we get on to the reveal. Of oh, I just, I just have to, I just have to notice Jenna is just like, crying like who would attack me on my wedding day and yellow jacket exactly like, i don't know who'd try to go after a living doll like you babe like he's <laughs> rough. it's rough right it's, whoever writes for him or was writing for him at the time truly was in that male machismo mode all the time all day and it's like ugh, it, it actually made him look bad and sound bad um then we revealed that the circus of crime is here so um, another thing that always cracks me up about them, or especially in this comic, is they were constantly looking for Thor, who clearly can wipe the floor with all of it by himself. <laughs> As you stated before, they rarely have powers. You're already in a room full of people that you can't handle by themselves. Your best bet was probably Hawkeye to take out. You cannot be any of the other people, but yet and still you want Thor there along with all of the other superpowered people and you have no skill set to take them down. I love the arrogance. I love the, the confidence. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that I see in a lot of people now that don't have the skill set, but they claim they can just do it all. So, yeah, representative Gen Z a little. <laughs> I hear you. Sorry, Gen, sorry, Gen Z. <laughs> you think but, that the circus of crime would do really well on TikTok because I do think that they would. <laughs> I think they would do excellent on TikTok. Best for David alone. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, so as we, there's oh, a there's ahead. a moment I just want to give a, a nerd moment here. I, and I actually just learned this today when I was prepping. There's a moment where Vision knocks the clown aside, and the clown says, "Maybe I should have listened to Emmett Kelly." And I googled this; I didn't know this before. So yep. Emmett Kelly was like a Great Depression era clown who like patterned himself after hobos. Like he was like a sad clown that performed with circuses. And in 1944, his clown name was was Weary Willie, which is amazing. They were in Stamford, Connecticut. There were 6,000 people in the tent and a mysterious fire broke out. And it was like a bad fire. Like the whole big top went up and they're trying to get people out. And uh, 168 people were killed and like another 700 almost were injured. And it was like cover of Time magazine. 
Emmett Kelly, there's an image of him like in his sad clown makeup, carrying like a single bucket of water, like to go put the fire out uh, in his clown costume. And it's kind of wonderful. Uh, and uh, I don't know much about, about his life otherwise, but apparently he was uh, kind of an infamous clown. So to see the clown referencing this guy was really interesting. So there's some uh, there's some cool circus history for you. That's dope. Like that type of stuff I love. I love when you can look up things and it segues to different things that's actually happening. Um, oh, so now we're at the place where Black Panther, of course, is fighting again, the Gambino twins or after him. So I love the part um, this was one of my favorite lines for some reason when um, I think, what is his name, the reader? Was it? Uh, Ringmaster. The Ringmaster. Ringmaster said, since you two shall never know a true honeymoon, at least I can arrange that you die together. And I was like, that's really dope. Like that would be the signature line in a movie or something. But what's interesting is that the Wasp and her beautiful stuff is telling Hank to run, this doesn't concern you, it's not your fight. So she's still trying to protect him um, and, and really doesn't even know who he is. So I had a question. Has she never seen him out of costume? Nope. She just knows it's him because, well, I mean, she's seen him <laughs> out of costume a lot, but he's only been yellow jacket an issue, but he kissed her and that's when she figured out that, that it was Hank. So she was willing to date, marry, and be with somebody who she just never saw unmasked. She couldn't get him to marry her when he was himself. And now that he's mentally <laughs> ill, it's her chance. She's got to go now, 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 or he's going to be back to normal and won't marry her. And you say des desperate much, desperate much. <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh, my God. But um, I think that, is that my last page? Yeah, yeah, um, you're I good there. Uh, Tree, will you guide us through kind of the, how does the issue wrap up? Okay, so um, we we start on Yellow Jacket kind of almost going to like a fetal position almost for like, I guess kind of that's uh, harking back to kind of his mental health issues in a way. Um, but then, you know, uh, suddenly things start shaking, I guess, in the the um, ringmaster's, no, it's not possible. And we go, Yellow Jacket is actually Goliath. Spoilers. Ah. <laughs> as, he, as he bursts out of his costume. Into he literally bursts out of his costume. I assume... He was wearing the Goliath costume underneath. Right. Costume, <laughs> like in this case. Okay. Um, you know, otherwise just like a full frontal. Um, and he, spandex on spandex on spandex. He has the Ant-Man costume underneath that. <laughs> it's a yeah, Matryoshka yeah. dolls just, just all the way down, you know? <laughs> the, um, the, yeah, and then we he grabs the snake and um then also grabs his uh beloved wife um then we get a shot where like the ringmaster jumps underneath the uh kind of a, i find this art really really weird here <laughs> um i don't know what exactly the artist was going for it's it's very fragmented kind of uh i guess maybe he's because he's still growing but this it it kind of looks like they're on top of like a, a circus tent but i think it's yeah, meant to be yeah. floor and it's meant to be like there's there's like different um what is it shadow lines i guess i don't know what what exactly the artist was going for there but um then he wraps up the the snake the poor snake <laughs> i feel so awful for this thing do not do this to snakes irl this is an awful like he literally like um he like wraps up the snake in knots and he wraps up the ringmaster in the snake <laughs> um, and animal animal abuse is not okay someone no, needs not to call, okay yeah, someone no, needs to call the aspca on princess python <laughs> <laughs> 
and then we have T'Challa being very, very competent. <laughs> he's probably he's probably the best person in this issue, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, like we have Hawkeye still hung up somewhere. Um, and I don't know what else like everyone else is watching, I guess. <laughs> um, so T'Challa is kind of Black Panther's sort of um, uh, doing acrobatics with the, the acrobatic twins there. And I don't know his name. I'm sorry, but the the clown. Um, <laughs> who, who calls who calls the Black Panther a jungle jumping jack? So again, oh gosh, yeah, again, uh, again. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, um, appears to have some sort of um, I want, want like walking stick ray gun. It's a it's, yeah. a, it's a ray cane. It's a ray. <laughs> well, my ray cane, for instance, is totally useless. <laughs> Um, and he takes, he tries to take out um, Vision, but Vision makes like a couple quips. Um, the, you know, like I'm the walking solar battery. And uh, he, I guess, um, gives him third degree burns. <laughs> um, and then we, we, from there, we cut to Hawkeye being kind of useless, I guess. I do really like this portrayal of Hawkeye. It's like <laughs> he's kind of equal to Jarvis's situation. He also just walked in on this situation. They immediately like hung him up. And he he's hearing all this, you know, someone being um what you got nearly eaten by a python and like I'm assuming laser noises going off. And he's like, hmm, I should probably do something about that. So he um uh he starts to swing back and forth while Jarvis is looking at him. And I, I don't know how he does this, but he somehow gets um apparently some of his arrows have like acid in them and he manages to to get them to melt the ropes once he gets off the meat hook. Yep. I'm not quite sure. And um, he like rushes to the scene, and then we we cut to like but I, he I actually... leaves, he leaves Jarvis <laughs> hanging on the hook. I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> and he quips as well. You hang loose down here, Jarvis. Like, like, <laughs> <all right. laughs> Um, I hope they. Right. I like to think they just forgot about him and like continued on with the wedding. But um, then we we cut to probably my favorite, where um Princess Python is punched in the face by Janet. Um, the she <laughs> well yeah, Princess Python is trying to escape, and Janet's just like, you know, just gets up and like she just wallops her in the face, which I love. And yeah. then Hawkeye appears on the scene, and we but everything is kind of the police have arrived. May I add, add in like record time? Um, <laughs> so I assume it took Hawkeye like about three minutes to climb up the stairs, and the police have already arrived, and they've like arrested the whole circus. You know, what I found interesting that I didn't like is the, the, the villains all kind of supported each other, except for Ringmaster had to insult Princess Python and one of the things and just like say some demeaning term to her. Yeah. I was like, like why like, do you need that? I like, the, like I said, it's 1969. So unfortunately, <laughs> we were in it. <laughs> I think it's because he sees that we all like Pi- Princess Python better. And he's yeah. just like, oh, I've got to like assert myself. Like she's like trying to take my position. And it's like, yeah, because she'll do it better than you. Like everybody likes her more. And <laughs> the line I have to say, right, is like classic because she goes, oh, I got to escape. It's now or never. And then the wasp goes, I got never. news for you, girly. It's never. Found. And you're just like, Janet, this is the Janet I know and love. She love is it. not getting in the way of that ring. Nothing will love stop it. it. 
Uh, yeah, I do love that kind of like they. I think they are very angry at Ringmaster though in this kind of final thing here. They're like blast Ringmaster and his crummy yeah. plans. So like you know they're they're like aware that the guy who's leading them is kind of shit. So <laughs> yeah. And then, and then we, the, the, I was gonna say, tell us about the last page. All right. So the last page, I think, is an example of um. You know when you like, you're like, Loki the artist maybe had a bit of a kink and um, <laughs> not to say anything just like when i you know just just look at it and you're like mm. and so like because for whatever reason goliath hasn't gone back to like his normal size he's now picked up um his wife in the arm and you know uh what you call it hawkeye is sort of like looking on in disbelief and you know um janet sorts to kind of explain i guess for you to hang with a king-sized dose of accident induced schizophrenia we're like oh you know whatever he had like he had a little touch of schizophrenia but he's better now but she, like she's fully admitting i know he's <laughs> mentally ill but i married him anyway and it's okay because <laughs> i checked with my lawyers you're stuck now <laughs> i made it very very clear in the prenup what was going to happen <laughs> the um, and yeah so they start to then explain like what happened um what you call like there was things went down and he uh, dropped some various what was it it tested gases experimental and he, gases yeah like just kind of yeah. like it's it, at, at that point like science was this vague kind of like it's like magic what do you want you know <laughs> like it's it's like it might, it might as well just be like um magical potions that he dropped um and magnetism from yeah, like the yeah. x-men in the 60s where it's like <laughs> magnetism does everything that's incredible <laughs> the um yeah and then like they're kind of oh they affected me they turned to a man of many ways the opposite so like i guess the potions slash gases gave him like mental health issues is the implication they're giving here uh, um so he's like no more everybody's face is like, yeah yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> that's that's how my depression happened it was magical gases. <laughs> um, not again and yeah the um so there'd be no more Goliath. So he kind of explaining himself how he became yellow jackish. Um, so he kind of explains it for kind of like, oh, I named my subconscious naturally suggested a fitting mate for the the wonderful wasps. So I guess he turned himself into the yellow jacket because he was kind of thinking of Jan and he was kind of, I guess he wanted to go along with her color scheme. <laughs> You know, well, the, the, the insect what, thing. I guess yeah, yeah. With the insect. <laughs> well, that's what that's what partners do. They match each other's palettes. <laughs> um, and yeah, we end like a really, really nice scene. We're like, I, I actually kind of really love this. Where she, they, they kind of Goliath is still huge, <laughs> and Jan <laughs> is like small, and she's actually grabbing him by the ears. Um, the so for know, like for perspective for our listeners, this would be as if you as a grown person were holding a toddler-sized doll. And that's the <laughs> that's the perspective. Like Janet is kissing him on the lips, but he could put her whole head in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um so like there's she's like literally, I guess, grabbing him by the ears to pull herself up to kiss him, which I think is kind of it's it's a weirdly sweet and weird image. Um, and then she says, whether you married me as Hank Pym, Yellow Jacket, or White Harp, it's equally legal. <laughs> Need I add that I looked it up? This is, I, I guess that he's like aware that it didn't really matter, you know, what his persona was. They're both married and it's happily ever after. 
question mark so. if you picture all this as like a scooby-doo episode with like a laugh track it's almost easier to read but from a 2022 perspective there's some problems here oh uh, yeah <laughs> obviously obviously this is not an avengers podcast we did not spend any time on the x-men they appeared in the background of the <laughs> panel but 60s marvel is fun in all the titles it's delicious to go through this with all of you uh, and just as a side note for our continuity specialist, Kurt Busiek takes this version of Hank Pym, who is mentally ill and doesn't know who he is as Yellow Jacket, and brings him into that series Avengers Forever at the end of the 90s, where it's like a group of time traveling Avengers who are doing all this crazy shit with Kang and Immortus. It's a great series. And there's two versions of Pym on the team, and it's fantastic. So go, give that a read if you haven't. Uh, as we're as we're wrapping up, I know we went a little over time. Thank you, everybody, for your patience. Uh, or do you have any final thoughts on this issue uh, that you'd like to share before we do our final uh, our final outros? Um, I had a my, I had a great time today. I did too. My final thoughts are: love was love that she is the fashionista that she always is. But I am so thankful that we have evolved as people and in writing and in representation. So a lot of these things that we were enamored with as a child are no longer in play. And the future generation gets to kind of not be exposed to these things unless they're being tagged as the toxic things that they are yeah. in the comics. Yes. It's so, very clear yes. this is like written by a white dude. <laughs> who, just, who, who maybe talked to a woman once, once. <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i'm sure i'm sure like a lot of like a lot went into it um and whatnot but like yeah yeah definitely there's like uh like on on my part uh i do really because it's such a zany issue and the inclusion of like the circus kind of troupe kind of makes it zanier and just how janet is just like she's so you know hellbent on getting married and like it just and it's like it's completely baffling to like all the other avengers who are like ah he's clearly after her money or you know he's clearly after something and you know it's just it's a very it's a very strange issue it's very <laughs> weird sarah any final thoughts oh yeah i mean always <laughs> um especially now right but i would agree that Black Panther completely carries this issue. His fight scenes are incredible. So if I was going to say, like, yeah, all of the other characters speak to him in a way that I don't like or condone in any way, but his fight scenes are rad. So yes. I love that he was in this issue, at least, because he makes a mark. Like, he's a really uh, compelling person to watch, even in the olden days when you're just, like, offensive you know, but also just like always was a compelling character, I think. So it's nice to see him here um, and, you know, could have done without many things, but it was nice to see him really shine. And in a way that I don't know that he always was able to in this era. But I also think that, of course, Janet is so problematic. <laughs> like she's our problematic fave in this issue. And she goes on, though, to be really just an absolutely compelling character. I would also make a note that Roy Thomas, we've brought up multiple times during this episode that Roy Thomas has a like obsession with just dropping cultural references all through his comics. I think it almost never works because you look back and he's like making references that I find to be pretty questionable nine times out of ten. I think it works really well here because he also brings up Bobby Fisher. You might as well challenge Bobby Fisher to a chess match, right? So I love that. And I think that here it was kind of fun stuff. So I actually 
like I said, it's like sometimes with Roy Thomas, I'm like, I could have done without that Norman Mailer reference or something. But here I was like, okay, that clicks like that works really well. And I think it was consistent through the issue. So I was actually really glad he did that this issue. Three concluding thoughts for me quickly. Number one, I'm picturing the Avengers all sitting down. It's four hours later. They're having another cocktail and someone goes, holy shit, Jarvis is still hanging from the hook. (laughs) (laughs) That definitely is happening. Yeah, poor Jarvis is going to be up there for like an ad, like at least three or four hours. Number three, don't quote me on this, but I think this is 60s Marvel's second only big wedding event. We had Reed and Sue, and then we had this one. Uh, Wedding events were a big deal. It's always a bunch of heroes gathering uh, and then some sort of villain team attacks, right? Yeah. And then number uh, number three, it's just a reminder that even though we're reviewing X-Men books, the X-Men are always and always have been part of a larger universe. We had the recent comic, the X-Men Hellfire Gala, where characters like Captain America and Iron Man and others are very heavily featured. Uh, they are part of a bigger world that involves more than just the mutants. And it's always fun to see, even though they're in one panel here. So I hope our <laughs> listeners had a great time. This was a blast today. As yes, we are... Was. As we are wrapping up, tell everybody where we, uh, where you can be found online. And recognizing that this issue is scheduled to come out on August 9th, or this issue, this episode, uh, uh, <laughs> what do we have to look forward to coming up from you if you're able to talk about anything? Uh, you can find Gray Malkin Lane on Twitter under Gray Malkin PP like podcast or on Instagram under Gray Malkin underscore Lane. Uh, we have a lot of stuff coming up. I have uh, all-star lineups like scheduled for the next few months and I'm super pumped. Our next episode is going to feature Ian Churchill. Uh, we have uh, X-Men number 52 we're reviewing. Steve Orlando's making an appearance as well as Dayspring from the Power of X-Men podcast. Um, after that, we have uh, another powerhouse lineup with Clay McLeod and Chapman and Carrie Harris and Kath Laurie are both coming back. So I'm really excited. Uh, fun, fun stuff. Uh, we're also doing the Patreon on, on Grey Malkin Lane now. In fact, uh, in a few days, Sarah and I are getting together to record a, an episode on uh, Vera Cantor. Yeah. We're doing focused mini episodes. When I say mini, oof. Uh, uh, w- many episodes on just one single character. I recorded with Rob Salerno on Bobby Drake's parents yesterday, and I budgeted 45 minutes and we talked for two hours. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun and it's great. And if you're enjoying this content, uh, jump onto our Patreon for uh, for bonus episodes. We've also got our t-shirts now on TeePublic. You can see uh, uh, um, links that I've put on Twitter. I'm wearing one now. It's my Coffee A Go Go shirt. Uh, so if you're enjoying our 60s content, uh, please uh, enjoy and help support. Uh, so uh, if we could do the same thing with uh, same order we did at the beginning, Tree, Bar, and then Sarah. Okay, so um, you can find me at Treesums on Twitter. Um, things that are coming up for me, um, it's kind of a bit of a lull. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of like ongoing, but I'm I'm part of a what you're at the <clears throat> the crashing team with um Matthew Klein and uh, Morgan Beam. That's with uh, from IDW, a really really great book. And I also have a Radiant Black, um, with Kyle Higgins. That's um going to be released uh in I think next month. And um, I'm currently doing um, some League of Legends things for uh, called Star Guardian uh, for Riot Games at the moment. So that's kind of what's coming up on my end. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tree. And it's great to get to know you. And I'm confident that I said your name incorrectly at least once during this episode. And I apologize. (laughs) Everyone is Trina or Tree and not Triana. If I messed that up at all, I am super sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Bar, go ahead. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am Bar Fox. You can find me on all social media at Bar Fox. That's two R's and two X's. You can also find me at Cosplay Your Way. And what's coming up for me, one, Comic-Con Africa will be playing the Cosplay Your Way in color 
documentary that I created, produced, and directed. And it won two Tele Awards. I kind of keep saying that. So I'm so excited to be going international. Um, two, I will be an attending professional at Dragon Con, and I will have a slew of panels. So please, if you're there, come up, say hello, come visit me, stop in the panels. We're going to be discussing an array of things, and I will be a judge at two of the contests. Um, I'm promoting people to join the super villain fashion couture contest, or it's not even a contest, it's a runway. So just get in and as a villain and walk, walk, walk. And in my other life, I was, my show was nominated for an Emmy. So send me your love and um, let's hope that I win because I need that. I would like to say Jabbar or Bar Fox working on the Emmy winning show, March. That's my goal for this month. <laughs> I am thrilled for everything you have going on, Bar. I'm a huge fan. Uh, how wonderful to nerd out with you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Good luck on that. <laughs> Thank you. I need it. I need it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've done the work, right? But I, no, yes. I, I am very excited and I hope that that, that you do win. So um, you uh, you can find me at Sarah Century on Twitter. It's a real mixed bag. I'm tweeting about all kinds of random things. Um, <laughs> some people follow me and then follow unfollow me very quickly. And I understand. So if you stop in, you realize that it's 90% shit posts and it's not for you, that's okay. You can always go to my website, sarahcentury.com, which is very low on the shit posts, actually, and kind of just a little bit more fact-based. I am a horror writer and I have a lot of horror stuff coming up, but it's all in that fun, can't announce it yet zone. I have a narrative horror podcast that's coming up in November that's going to be amazing, but stay tuned for that. It's another thing you're going to want to follow me to figure out. Previously mentioned the Decoded uh, Pride collection. You can buy the first two editions and also the third PDF is coming up right now. Bitches on Comics is going to be at FlameCon. I'm not going to be there in, per or in person, but we're doing a virtual hosting of a panel um, that is a representation as a double-edged sword with a lot of people that are incredible. So I highly recommend checking that out if you happen to be going to FlameCon. All right. Hey, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.